0: what has happened to a nation that used to fear the lord to a people whose foundation was built upon god's word we've allowed the world's opinion to chart a different way so it's time the church of jesus christ To boldly stand and say, God's word will stand against the raging tide of those who criticize and work their evil plan. God's word will stand against the gates of hell with power to prevail. In the hearts of men, God's Word will stand. They can take it from the courthouse walls, remove it from our schools, Teach our children that we're animals. Speak against the golden rule. Try to hide our Christian heritage from the public eye. But they'll never overcome God's Word. No matter how they try, God's Word will stand against the raging tide of those who criticize and work their evil plans god's word will stand against the gates of hell with power to prevail in the hearts of men God's Word will stand. It is forever settled to evermore endure. It's the only way the sinner's heart could ever be made pure. God's Word will stand against the raging tide Of those who criticize and work their evil plans, God's word will stand against the gates of hell with power to prevail in the hearts of men, God's word will stand. God's word will stand.
1: All right, good to be here tonight, and it's good to be anywhere in church on a Friday night. And uh, some of you might appreciate that more than others, I don't know, depends on where you used to be on Friday nights. Uh, For most of us, it's traffic. Amen. I'd rather be here in the best traffic jam anywhere in the country tonight. So there you go. Second Peter, if you will. Second Peter chapter number 2. It's good to be here with you folks again. It has been a long time. And uh, boy, you, you'd think as you got older, you'd just slow down. And I think you do, but they didn't tell you that time speeds up when you slow down. And so just seemingly you're always behind Uh, in what you're trying to get accomplished. 2 Peter chapter 2. May I say to you, as we read this passage tonight, we, I firmly believe, are on the doorstep of the coming of the Lord. I believe the rapture is imminent. I uh, believe it stronger tonight than I did years ago. Uh, Having said that, I believed it years ago. Does that bring things into context a little bit? As a matter of fact, I was saved in 1960 as just a five-year-old boy, and I grew up in an independent, fundamental, Bible-believing Baptist church, and I can remember early, not perhaps the date or the exact time, but early in my Christian life, hearing that the Lord was coming back, and I believed it. I believed it when I was five. I believed it when I was six. I believe it when I'm sixty-two. And having said that, maybe you begin to understand what I'm talking about. Sometimes we just, I think, begin to wonder, where are you? We look around us. We see the things that are going on. We see the things that are taking place, the things that seem to be just crumbling all around us that have had great meaning over the course of our lives. We're watching our country seemingly pull apart at the seams and all of those things. And it is a perplexing situation. And that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about tonight. If you're there in Second Peter chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in the first verse and read down through the ninth verse and then focus on verse number 7 and 8. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of the truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations, And to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. The Scripture here refers to uh, the status mentally, spiritually of Lot. When he was dwelling in Sodom and Gomorrah. The word used here is vexed. Uh, He was vexed at the time he was there. Uh, His existence there was a vexation. And I find sometimes that you and I, I believe live in perhaps that same spiritual vexation in this day and in this time. For the sake of brevity, can I just kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and look, do you understand Lot did not go to Sodom and Gomorrah to associate with Sodomites? He did not go to Sodom and Gomorrah because he wanted to be out of the will of the Lord. He did not go to Sodom because he wanted to get out of the will of the Lord. He did not go to Sodom because he rejected the God of Abraham. He None of those things. We tend to just kind of fall into that trap if we're not careful. We assume that he was backslidden when he went to Sodom. I don't necessarily know that that's true. The Bible says here he vexed his righteous soul. So God has a little bit of a different perspective of Lot, even when he's in Sodom, than you and I apparently have. We tend to think, of, well, this old guy got backslidden, got out of the will of God, threw his hands up, said, I'm quitting on God, and made a beeline for Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't think that's so. I don't know exactly what the circumstances are that drew him to Sodom. But I will remind you that Abraham had been there before. He had delivered the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah early on. And he had spent time there as just a young man when accompanying Abraham. So maybe he had made some friends or some allies before. I do not know. But I am not going to stand by and believe for a moment that somehow he was backslidden and had given up on God. I think for the same reason you and I find ourselves in an ungodly world today. I think that probably any one of us, if we had the power, would change it. I think if God would give us absolute control and authority for just a day, we could solve a lot of these problems of sin. I wish the Lord would do that, but I I don't believe He's going to. But the very fact that I'm here doesn't mean necessarily that I've given up on the things of the Lord. You understand what I'm saying? I think there are Christians today, God's people, striving to live in a way and in a manner that pleases the Lord, seeking to to be a blessing to other believers, to bring the lost to Christ. I think they're going about their day-to-day business of being a believer. But can I be honest? It's difficult today. You imagine what it would have been like to have lived somewhere between Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 7 as a believer. The resurrection of the Lord was still common news and uh, the proofs of his resurrection were still being circulated by eyewitnesses, those that had been at the tomb. There was great fanfare and excitement about the fact that Jesus Christ had risen. The believers had drawn together. He had gone back into heaven and as he went back into heaven he said, "I'm coming again." But if you get on up there closer to Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8 and you get Saul breathing out threatenings, imprisoning, and killing Christians, how many of you understand that would have something to do with your outlook? Can I say the Bible calls that vexation? Vexation simply means being hung between two opposites without clarity of which way to go. Just kind of hung in the middle, we would say, between a rock and a hard place. And the Bible here speaks about Lot's existence in Sodom and Gomorrah as something that vexed him day by day. Having said that, don't you feel vexed day by day in the world in which we live? I think Paul said, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain, he's kind of hung between two. I don't think it is unusual, nor is it uncommon for us to find ourselves in a place where we just really don't know where to go. As a matter of fact, I think that's the way sometimes when people abandon the things of the Lord. I don't think anybody really throws their hands up and says, that's it, I quit. You know, getting backslidden or getting away from the things of the Lord usually is a very slow process, and sometimes it's a pretty arduous process. It's difficult. Uh, you know, the first time you say, "Well, you know, I'm just not going to church tonight," I'm just going to tell you something. You don't enjoy that first time. You don't. You're not in church. It doesn't matter who's playing whatever game they're playing or what's on television or what else it might be that would occupy your time. Your thought process is, well, you know, I wonder what they're thinking about me. I should be there. You ever been in that situation where somehow you were pulled away from the things that you knew you should be a part of and yet you just couldn't be? That's that vexation. You know, the Scripture talks about vexation in numerous places and it's never a comfortable thing. It's always pretty traumatic. It is literally like being pulled in two different directions. It is the word that is used to describe Amnon's state of mind when he became adulterous and illicit in his thoughts toward his sister. He was vexed in that sense. He was pulled in two different directions. A right direction and an evil direction. And he just allowed himself to remain there. Job, when he was sitting on the ash heap of adversity, chapter 27, verse 2 said this, As God liveth, who hath taken away my judgment, and the Almighty, who hath vexed my soul. He didn't know what to do. Put yourself in his position for a moment. He hadn't done anything wrong to repent of. He couldn't say, well, if I fall on my face before God and beg Him to forgive me, He'll forgive me and maybe... He had none of that. He had done the right thing. And he said, God has put me in this position of being vexed. I don't know which way to go. There's no answer. There's no comfort. There's no peace. And I say to you tonight, I think that's a little bit in line with where Christians are on the doorstep of the coming of the Lord. It's interesting that the wisest man that ever lived, who tasted of everything there was to taste, who experienced everything there was to experience, who did all there was to do, strangely enough, ten times in the book he wrote called Ecclesiastes, he says, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. You know what he found out? He found out that having it all, or having every specific thing, whether it be vice or virtue, Having all of those, none of them could bring you to a place where you didn't just feel pulled in that sense. It's uncomfortable to be human as a Christian. Why? Because we're not made for this world the moment we trusted Christ as our Savior. Our citizenship was in another place. We are now citizens of a place called heaven. And somehow residing where we reside creates that vexation of spirit day in and day out. Particularly as our society becomes more and more like Sodom and Gomorrah. The next time you get to looking at old brother Lot, don't be so critical. Next time you get there, look around and look at what you see on television and what you see at the mall and what you see on the billboards and what you hear in the shopping centers as people talk. Look around and ask yourself the question, is this perhaps what bothered Lot about Sodom and Gomorrah? I think living here, it is understandable. The Lord said, evil men shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. I understand that. That in the last days, some shall depart from the faith even. It's not a pretty picture that we see when we approach the coming of the Lord. And I submit to you tonight that living where we live and believing with all my heart that the coming of the Lord is still yet in my lifetime. You say, do you really believe that? I've been believing it now for 40 years. Why wouldn't I keep on believing it? But having said that, it's a very vexing thing as a believer to exist in this world. Being drawn in two different directions. Being drawn, I look at young people in our church and in our ministries, and I I have a heart for those that are under 30, because what do you plan for your life? Sometimes I think as a pastor and a preacher, I've been more discouraging than I've been encouraging because I don't want to mislead you if you're under 30. (laughs) I don't think you're going to retire. Say, why would you say that? Because of what I just said. I think the Lord's coming in my lifetime and that would put me well beyond my lifetime. And so, I, I don't know what to tell you, but I understand hearing those teachings and hearing the preaching of the Word of God can be a vexing thing. What do I do with my life? Am I supposed to get married? Should I have children? And then you add to that all the turmoil that is in the world that was prophesied. That would precede the coming of the Lord. And you wonder, I've had people say it exactly in this term. Should we even have children? Should we get married? What should I do with my life? Can I say to you as a pastor, that's a vexing place to consider. How do I minister to those young people? How do I say, here's what you should do? And you say, well, wait wait a minute. What should we do? Well, I'm glad you asked, but I don't have any real answers, but I've got some good advice. You say, what's the difference between advice and an answer? Advice can take you in the right direction. If I don't have an answer, I can't put you in the exact spot. I don't think it's time for us to get discouraged and downtrodden. I don't think it's time to throw in the towel. I don't think it's time to quit. I don't think it's time for us to sell out the fundamentals of the faith and sell out the good old-fashioned church where the Word of God was preached on a day-by-day basis. I don't think we need to become contemporary. Contemporary is synonymous for loser. You say, I wouldn't talk that way. That's why God called me to preach and didn't call you. You're a loser if you have to go that. You know what you're saying? That this didn't do me. This didn't suit me. This didn't give me an answer. And so, I'm going to make it up as I go on. i got news for you, the answers are still in the old book. God still speaks through the Word of God. And He doesn't have to have all the fluff. God can speak through old-fashioned hard preaching still to this day. But the problem is, that kind of in- heightens the vexation that we live in. you realize that for most people going out the back door of the church into the normal world is like night and day? I confess, Brother Brown, sometimes I pray, Lord, I live in a sheltered environment. I, I get paid to preach and paid to read my Bible and I sit in an office where nobody uses profanity. I, I-, I live in a sheltered environment. I don't like to go to the malls. I go with my wife. I sit in the car, wait patiently for her to come back. If there's something that I need, I go in and I get it, come back and wait patiently in the car. And I, I, don't, I just don't like being around that environment. I understand a little bit of how Lot must have felt being in Sodom and Gomorrah. If we're living in that type of an environment... If that vexation is a part of what we endure as children of God, sometimes the question is, what am I supposed to do? Don't you think there were times when Lot, sat in an easy chair, opened the newspaper and saw some headline about what was going on or about to go on in Sodom and said, God, what am I supposed to do about this? You say, well, he should have got out. Well, okay, you quit your job tomorrow and you move to another town unbeknownst to what the name of the town is and then call me in a week tell me how it's going. I think he just sat in that chair vexed, having a desire to depart and then needing to remain for whatever reason. So I'm not going to tell you how to get rid of the vexation. I think it's a natural part of where we live. But I'm going to tell you what will help us in this time of vexation to get something done. Number one, number one, in this time of vexation, in this time on the doorstep of the coming of the Lord, the fulfillment of the prophecies, the time of the shout when we're caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord. What a wonderful, wonderful time. But until then, I think it was Brother Lakin said years ago, I hear people talking about the sweet by and by, but nobody's talking about the nasty now and now. And sometimes I think if we're not careful, we don't know how to deal with the nasty now and now. And sometimes even longing for the sweet by and by can't dispel the vexation. Uh, I feel that way when I turn on the news. When I drive down the road, if I t- it doesn't matter which network it is, it doesn't take me more than four or five seconds to just feel that spirit of vexation where you think, God, somebody's got to do something, but you don't know who or what, and you don't have any answers vexation write these down number one don't get buried in the world's values don't get buried in the world's values. We live in the world. The world has a sense of values. Those values have never been constant. They've always been in flux. They've always been changing. They've always been according to the lust of the time. And it, you notice we do things today that 20 years ago people would have thought were immoral and ungodly. I don't say we, but the world. We would have said that's ungodly. We wear clothes today. That 20 years ago people would have felt sorry for us. You see people walking around today and they got t- holes in their jeans and the knees are torn out, and you say, Oh, I feel sorry for you. Where'd you get those? Paid $195 for these. Now I feel even more sorry for you because you don't have a brain. Amen. The world has changed and altered, and if we're not careful, we can easily get buried or caught up in the worldly style and fashion of the day. The Scripture said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that they that use this world as not abusing it for the fashion of this world fadeth away. I don't need to get caught up. And I'm not just talking about fashion of dress, but fashion of speech, fashion of everything in the world moves and Trends. It doesn't matter what it is, you can take sports, you can take food, you can anything, and it moves in trends and those that are in charge of the corporation see to that because they're raking in the profits and so they're going to make this dish popular and next week they're going to make that look popular and then they're going to make this sound popular. Why? To rake in the money. But that only works on people who are susceptible to fashion. Oh, what's new? What's going on? We walk around with a mechanical instrument in our hand that tells us. It thinks for us. It tells us what's popular right now and where we can get it for the best price. So without thinking, we just hit the button and easy pay, and then easy suffer six weeks later when we find out how much we've easy paid. All of those things going on, it's just easy to float downstream now, isn't it? And I think for God's people, if we're not careful, we're going to succumb to that You say, well, what does that mean? Well, when the rapture comes, i got good news for you. We're out of here. But the bad news is we're going to look back and realize what we've wasted in a time of vexation that could have been profitable. We were just overwhelmed. We were under the burden. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know which way to turn. Anybody here tonight has a desire to be popular with those we would consider to be our peers and our friends and our people that we work with. Nobody wants to be a fuddy-duddy, and I don't even know what that is, but I don't want to be one. Nobody wants to walk out in the front yard and have somebody laugh at you and call you names. Nobody wants to go to work and have people... But that's what's happening in the society in which we live. The advocates of eliminating Christianity are more numerous today than they ever have. There's an all-out assault on you and I as Bible-believing, old-fashioned, fundamental Christians. That's hard. And as hard as it is for us adults, it's hard for young people, and it's hard for teenagers. And it's hard for young married couples. And it's hard for all of us. And sometimes there's that vexation that says, I just don't know what to do. Miserable if I do and miserable if I don't. Well, let me help you. One of the things you don't want to do is get caught up and get buried in the worldly fashion of this world. Why? Because it all changes. It all goes around in circles. And I'm keeping things in my closet because in another three years, I'll be able to sell and make a lot of money. Uh, all the wide ties. Somebody said, why are you still wearing wide ties? I said, that's all I got. They said, you need to get some narrow ties. I said, no, you need to wait five years and all mine will be in style and there'll be antiques and there'll be vintage and I can sell them for ten times what I paid for them. And with mine, you get the soup and the salad and everything right on there. You can just soak it up. The world's going around in circles, isn't it? You know what happened a lot? You got caught up in the fashion of Sodom and Gomorrah. I can't imagine what it was like when Lot's wife came home from the mall. And he said, what in the world have you got on? And she said, it's the latest thing. All the women in Sodom are dressing this way. This is the way, it's popular now. And I'm not saying it was ungodly. I'm just saying it was weird because the world's always weird. But somehow there he looked at that and he said, I can't believe, what did you pay? I can't believe what you paid for that and... Then his daughters, then his sons, and he began to watch them. And in that sense, he watched them buy into the fashion. And and I believe this as as a leader in a home. I think at some point you can't fight City Hall anymore. And I can't imagine what Lot's wife and kids felt like when they saw him come home, having been to the mall. Probably they said, we never thought Dad would ever, never know Dad. I just just want you to know, Dad looks really strange. But all he was doing was just buying into the fashion and the allurement of the world. Listen, Christians, I'm not saying we need to be scarecrows standing out in the middle of a field, but we don't have to buy into that stuff. We don't have to buy into that stuff and think, I have to have it. I, have, I need it. It's going to make me popular. It'll help people like me. I've had young people say, I just want to fit in. Sorry, when you got saved, you ruled out ever fitting into this world. Not going to happen. And it doesn't matter what you put on or how you talk. You'll never fit in this world if you esteem Jesus Christ in your heart. Be careful about that. All that getting caught up in the fashion of this world can do is bring you to a place of ruin. because Lot finds his way down there in Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me say this: don't get, caught, don't get buried in the worldliness and the style and the fashion of this world. We're out of here. But number two: reach your tent. Reach your tent. You know, before Genesis 19, when God rains fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, the preceding chapter is Genesis 18. That's brilliant of me to tell you that. But you remember what happened in Genesis 18? God negotiates with Abraham. And it's the story where God says, well, 50. That's where Abraham starts. If you find 50 righteous there, and God said, okay, 50. And then he keeps working his way down. And did you ever notice that that he gets all the way down to 10? And God says, I'll not destroy it for 10. And then He doesn't say anymore. May I be honest? I think God would have been negotiated further down. It is obvious to me God knew He was being played. Right? I mean, if He didn't know it when we went from 50 to 40, He has to know it when we're down to 10. This guy's playing me like a violin. And God doesn't resist that. He allows Himself to be played. You say, why? Because I believe with all my heart God was looking for a reason to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think the reason Abraham stopped at 10 is because he's doing the math. You got Lot and Mrs. Lot. And then I got two sons. Then I got two daughters. And daughters, and I, got, I do all the math. You get it all counted up, and Lot and Mrs. you got 10 people. And you know what Abraham assumed? Surely, Lot has reached his family. But he hadn't. But he hadn't. You know that vexation that he was under made him a mockery to his own family. The dad they loved. The dad they respected. The dad who bought the food they put in their mouth and the clothes they put on their back. They ridiculed him. Why? Why? because he never reached them with the gospel of Jesus Christ in that sense. You know what I find very often? We get caught up in the world, we get vexed, and I just don't know what's going on. What are they doing in Washington? How is that happening? What in the world are they thinking? And then we don't do anything to change the tide. I am not an ardent advocate of extreme soul winning, I guess. Let me call it that. Listen, if you haven't led 200 people to Christ this week, I don't think you're a failure. I know in some circles, you would be. As a matter of fact, I don't think God's going to care about how many necessarily. But I've been preaching this for 50 years, Nigh unto it. Shame on you if you've never led one soul to Christ. Shame on you. You say, why? The least you could do is get the good news to somebody and bring them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You say, well, you don't understand my circumstances. You don't understand anybody else's circumstances either, but I believe it is within the plan of God for us at least to reproduce ourselves in Christ. You say, well, I've never done that. Then you better get busy. Because you're in a state of vexation that's kept you from doing anything. I didn't say you had to leave 10. I didn't say i had to leave 50, but boy won't it be embarrassing to stand in heaven while the anthems and the songs are being lifted to the stars, while they're praising Him at such a volume it would burst a human eardrum, and the glory of God overshadows that place. And we're thanking Him for saving our soul. Thanking Him that we're there for all of eternity. And then having those eyes like a flame of fire focus on us and have Him ask you and me, who'd you bring with you? I gave you a free gift. It changed your life. It altered your existence. It gave you joy. It gave you peace. It gave you happiness. It gave you your family. It gave you your church. It gave you your country. And you didn't tell anybody. And I say it one more time with all respect. Shame on you. Shame on you. If Lot had simply reached his own family, Sodom would have been spared. God would have had mercy. You say, well, well, what?" listen, God would have solved the sin problem. No doubt in my mind, God would have solved the sin problem. But He would have spared the city. Don't get caught up in the fashion of this world, because we're out of here pretty quick. Don't forget to reach your ten or your one. Reach somebody with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say this. Beg God to intervene. Beg God to intervene. You know what I find? God is not nearly as concerned with how we lay out prophecy as He is how He works. You know how many times the Lord's been going to come back in my lifetime? You know how many dates have been set? You know how many people have gone on the radio and said, this is the date. It's coming, you know. And in case you missed, he hasn't been here yet. You say, "Well, well, I think God's on time. I think God's right on time too, but I also believe this. You know, God is controlling time. So whenever God comes, it'll be on time. And if it's not on our time, he'll explain to us why our time was not in sync with his time, and we'll understand it. So, simply put, be careful about this that God can intervene at any time. I mentioned the Christians in Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. You probably would have been disappointed. Wait a minute, they were preaching about the Lord coming back. And and we were waiting on him. He said when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was coming back. and We're going to go. We're waiting. They believed it was going to be in their lifetime, but it wasn't. Fast forward two or three decades down the road and go out and sit down next to an old man on the Isle of Patmos whose name was John. John, well, I was disappointed. I thought the Lord was coming back a lot sooner. Boy, all the turmoil and the fighting and the killing. I, I didn't see all that coming. But boy, now here we are. I just had this vision. I just saw God's revelation. And oh, He said, it's going to be wonderful. It's gonna, he said, even so, come quickly. When did you think He thought He was coming? But that was 90 A.D. And then comes 300 and 500 and nine hundred and a thousand. Do you understand somehow it would be easy for me to get disappointed because God wasn't on my schedule. But think about this. If the Lord had come as I'm sure John wanted Him to come. How many of you believe when He said even so come quickly right then would have been good with John? Yeah. Wouldn't have taken ten seconds. Ready to go. But where would you and I be? Where would the numerous revivals that occurred around this world be when people got saved left and right? Where would the great works of God be had He come back when John expected Him to come back? Now, you know, John didn't know those things were going to come, and so rightly he would say, Lord, come back right now. Just like you and I would. But never rule out the fact that God may have something up His sleeve, for lack of a better term. God can do anything. Anything. God can have things that He can do that you and I would perhaps never understand or imagine. I heard a story this week. Maybe you've heard it. If you have, I think it'll still be a blessing. You know, there was a revival in the Hebrides Islands back in the 30s, 40s, and through there. It was a great revival. Duncan Campbell was an old preacher that preached there. Some of his sermons are still on tape. He lived up into the 60s and maybe early 70s. And some of those revival messages, I'm talking about some of the cities where they actually said, what's happened in that city? And some of them said, I don't know, but Jesus, I'm told, lives there now. Revival fires swept through Wales and England and lit a fire that had not been burning there for a long time. I heard someone tell the story just this week that they traced that great awakening, that revival, when thousands and thousands of people got saved, to two sisters. Their names were Peggy and Christine Smith. They were 84 and 82 years of age. They were so weak in body, they could rarely leave their own home, they couldn't even go to church. And so they began to pray for God to send revival. And they prayed and they prayed. And somewhere in the course of their prayers, God heard from heaven. You understand when revival breaks out from heaven, it doesn't follow any pattern you and I would give it here. Literally the most unusual things took place God began to work. It is said that there was a a young boy whose name was Donald. He was related, a nephew of these two sisters, and he was gloriously saved and yet just a young man. But he moved aside and got alone with God and experienced God in a way that most people in those days never had any idea God could be experienced. It is said that Duncan Campbell went to pay him a visit one day and they said, He's out in the barn. He walked out to the barn and as he got closer, he could hear the voice of that young 16-year-old boy crying out to God, begging God to do something in his community. Campbell pushed the door open and said, I'm sorry to interrupt you. And he said this, the young boy said, Excuse me a little, Mr. Campbell. I'm having an audience with the king. And went right back to praying. Thousands of people got saved. All over the highlands, people began to come and trust Christ. They gathered together on one of the islands called Benera. And the young boy had gone there to accompany the preacher. And nothing seemed to be happening. And he looked at that young boy and said to that young boy, his name was Donald. He said, Donald, would you lead us in prayer? And said that young boy bowed his head and said these words, Oh God! I seem to be gazing through an open door. I see the Lamb in the midst of the throne with the keys of death and hell at His girdle. Oh God, there is power there! Let it loose! Let it loose! Thousands more came to Christ. You say, well, that was a while back. Well, and it was, but it is an interesting story. Those sisters had several other family members. Donald was a cousin who had gotten saved, the young boy. There was another sister that had come to the United States and immigrated to be here. She came to this country. Her name was Mary Ann Smith. And she was a cousin. Her last name was McLeod, but she was of the Smith side as well. She came here and she got married. Found a young man that she fell in love with and Married him in the early 30s. She had a child. And when that child was born, she named that child after herself, Mary Ann. After her mom, who was also Mary Ann. Mary Ann grew up to be a United States federal judge in our country. And then there was a boy who was born. He was named after his father. His father's name was Frederick and... So Frederick was born, and then another Elizabeth who was named after the Queen, and then she had another boy, and she named him Donald. It had been Donald who was her cousin that had prayed the fires down in the New Hebrides. Donald grew up in this country. He visited several times back to his ancestry, but he's always just been an American. He grew up in America and Several years ago, he had a Bible that had been passed down from those two sisters that had prayed for the revivals to come. One of their Bibles had found its way down through the family and he had become a little bit of a collector of Bibles and so he inherited that Bible. His name is Donald. Donald Trump. And I was told this last week that that Bible that was part of those revival meetings, the only tangible part that still remains is in the Oval Office of the President of the United States. You say, what are you saying? I'm saying you and I don't know what God's got planned. You and I don't know what God can do. But oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if He could do it again? If He could stir again! You say, well, this is wicked times. Revivals always come in wicked times. I submit to you, we need not to just come to the place where we abandon ourselves to the fatalistic view in some senses that God's going to be the way to fix this and it's got to be the rapture. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thought if somewhere down the road your great-great-grandchildren had your Bible and said, let me tell you the story of this Bible. Oh, it stirred America and thousands came to Christ. You say, Preacher, do you really believe that's gonna happen? What I believe is gonna happen has nothing to do with what I believe could happen. Do it again, that's what he said. Do it again, Lord, Donald cried. God moved into the Hebrides in a great way. America needs a revival, God's capable of sending a revival. Why in the world should we vex ourselves that it's got to be the rapture and every day the rapture doesn't come. We get. It. Maybe it would be better if we just decided to get out and win our ten and preach the gospel and pray for God to move in a great way. Don't get buried in the worldliness of style and fashion. Don't get caught up. Reach your ten. Beg God to do what only God could do if He's a mind to do it and to let Him use you if it could make a difference. And then finally, look up. Because He is coming. He is coming. I don't know when. I'd rather go out with a shout than with sorrow. I'd rather go out praising God for what He'd done in America and brought America back to its knees. But either way, I'm going out of here. I've got my ticket. I'm in first class going out. Amen. I'm ready. I've got bags packed. But I'm looking to see if God wants to do one more time, one more thing to maybe make a difference in this world. I say to you, living in this world oftentimes is just a vexation, isn't it? Waking up in the morning, turning on the news, picking up the newspaper, and thinking, oh no, it's happening again. Listening to a school shooting or a mass murder or a terrorist attack. We've lost the peace that we once had in America. We've lost the security that we once knew in America. The reality of our day is a day that has abandoned God and God's left us to our own devices, I think. But may I say to you, the joy is that even weeping may endure for the night. But joy comes in the morning. Some golden daybreak, Jesus will come. We will shout the victory. We're going home to heaven. That's a certainty. And I think we ought to rejoice in that. I think we ought to be happy in that. But having said that, when you get up tomorrow morning and look around, you'll feel that vexation again because, Lord, you didn't come and I'm still here. and Woe is me. But don't let that vexation hold you back because God still has the capability and the power. I have on my desk my... Wife, my secretary, typed them up for me today. I think there's probably 15, 16 letters to United States congressmen and senators that I heard speak last week. And I would say to the great majority of those, probably 14 of them, I'm absolutely certain, are born-again Bible-believing Christians. You say, I don't believe that stuff. Well, believe whatever you want to believe. But you know what I heard a United States congressman say the other day? He had been a youth director for 18 years in an independent fundamental Baptist church before he went to Washington, by the way. That crowd doesn't exist up there, I know. But you know what he said? He said, everybody calls Washington, D.C., Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, there's plenty here to validate that claim. But he said, you know, before God burned Sodom and Gomorrah, He made sure He was getting His people out He said, in the last two elections, there have been more Bible-believing Christians elected to federal government than ever before in the history of our country. He said, what do you explain if God's calling them in? I don't know. I'm not here to advocate that America is becoming a godly nation. But I know this, I know there's some people there that are as saved as you and I. I know there's some people I talk to and tears well up in their eyes when they talk about how the Lord forgave them and saved them from their sins. I watched a United States senator several years ago kneel in a hall with probably a thousand people right on the front of that aisle and hold a Bible up and he said, what America needs is not Democrats and not Republicans. What America needs is the Word of God preached in the pulpits of this country. A United States Senator! You say, are you here telling me America's going to have revival? I can't tell you that. But oh God, let it be. What a horrible thought that you and I would stand before the Lord someday and say, you know, you have not because you didn't ask. I submit to you somewhere along the line, we need to realize that that vexation is real. We're pulled between two worlds. We're pulled between evil and good. We're pulled between right and wrong. But God's in control. And somewhere along the way, I don't want to get caught up in this world system. I don't want to get deluded and fooled. I don't want to back out of church like Christians are doing by the throngs today. I don't want to get caught up in worldliness. and all. Listen, I want to be busy trying to win somebody to Jesus Christ. I want to give up on the fact that somebody out there prayed last night and wept themselves to sleep, somebody within two miles of this building. You listening to me? Put their head on their pillow last night and they wept and they said, God, I don't know whether you hear me or not, I don't know if you're even there, but something's got to change. 63,000 people killed themselves last year from heroin overdoses in our country. Don't tell me we're a happy people. Don't tell me we're just overjoyed. People are miserable and they're looking and they're searching and they're begging for something that has meaning. And here we sit, smiling, all dressed up and spiffied, talking about the Lord's coming. And we could care less what that means to them. But we've got the key. When you're 10, when you're 10, pray for God to do something in a magnificent and wonderful way. I want to go out with a shout. Amen. I don't want to go out and go, oh, I'm glad we're out of here. I want to go out with, We win! Ha <laughs> We got it! I want to be part of a generation that accomplished something for God. And the truth of it is, on my worst day, when nothing goes right and everything falls apart, I can put my head on my pillow and say, some golden daybreak, Jesus will come. He's coming. Would you bow your heads for a moment tonight? Could I encourage you, in a Bible conference, to people who love the Bible and have a good church and a wonderful pastor, and that it's easy to just find my spot in the pew and open my Bible and listen to the words and nothing ever really changes. How do we expect the world to change when Christians never allow anything to change in their lives? I think tonight God would love to change His people. I think He'd love to stir us again. I think He'd love to bless us one more time. I think that there's a possibility. You say, well, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is that God's going to do or what it is that God isn't going to do. But I find it ironic that the Lord continues to work Everywhere I go, every time I turn around, there are people that love the Lord. The commander of Andrews Air Force Base, where the President comes down the steps when he gets off his airplane. I met him at Faith Independent Baptist Church years ago. I've known him probably 20 years. He's a Bible-loving, Bible-toting Christian that's won people to Christ. He's Listen, God's put some people in places. Why won't you let Him? Why won't I let Him put me where I need to be and where I can make a difference? I'm not blowing smoke tonight. I'm not trying to raise your expectations. I'm not trying to raise false goals. I'm just saying this. One of these days, we're going to sit in heaven And we're going to talk about the things that we saw God do. I can't imagine how sad it would be to have the Lord sit next to us when we finished our song and our tales and say, let me tell you how it could have been. Because I wasn't willing that any should perish. But my people, which are called by my name, just didn't line up. Paul, what number? 636. 636, and boy, there's plenty of preaching tonight to help us to do business with.